Hello, strong, feisty women. Some of you may recognize my voice. I'm Celine Yeager, host of the Hit Play Not Pause podcast. Throughout my career as a professional health and fitness writer and now a podcaster, I hear countless questions from women who are trying to understand how their ever-changing hormones impact their sports performance. So we decided to serve up some answers in a brand new series called Hormonal that we will be releasing on the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast feed. Throughout this four-part series, reproductive endocrinologist Dr. Carla DiGirolamo and I will be tackling topics like periods, the pill, pregnancy, and conditions like PCOS, all from the perspective of sports performance. If you aren't already, follow the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast and stay tuned for our first episode releasing on April 15th. Also, have questions you want answered? Send us a voice note at speakpipe.com slash hormonal and we'll get it answered on the show. You are listening to the Girls Gone Gravel podcast, a podcast for women who are chasing epic and everyday adventures on their bikes. We are a production of Live Feisty Media and hosted by Christy Moan and Katherine Taylor. Hey, Christy. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Guess what I'm doing this weekend? Mm, I'm going to guess that you're racing your gravel bike somewhere. <laughs> well, <laughs> racing is a very <laughs> quote unquote term. racing. <laughs> um, yeah, I had my first outdoor ride. Of nice. These. Well, I've ridden outdoor, but on like pavement. Uh, but my first outdoor gravel ride yesterday, because I was talking to you on Tuesday, Wednesday, and I went on a ride. What's today? Thursday. And I ran into a tree. So I, I like, can't believe you ran into a tree. <laughs> it was a small tree. I understand you didn't do it on purpose, but I'm still trying to get my head around. Was it growing in the middle of the road? Or what, <laughs> what was this tree doing? Is, the, no, is it, it the was, tree's fault, Catherine? <laughs> it was the tree's fault. The tree jumped. No, um, it's, there's this paved trail that's like 15 minutes from me not mm-hmm. even that it's just a few miles from me and it's only four miles so I'll go over there and do intervals now that the weather's nice because there's a big hill so I can do like hill repeats or I can get on the flat and do like some sprints mm-hmm. um and so it's just a nice place to to train but there is like a big field and then like some hiking trails in the woods mm-hmm. so I decided to go up around the field and then cut through one of the hiking trails back onto the path so it's like I mean, maybe 200 yards down this trail, oh, but God. on the path, you have to go through those little pole things, you know, and then there was a big rock. So I was looking at like trying to get over the rock because I wasn't going very fast. <laughs> and then I got over the rock, but then there was a little tree on the other side. <laughs> it was See, fine. Folks, I did. Yeah. It's she's fine. She ran into a tree and can still gravel cycle. It's it not that hard. Tree. Listen, I am the person that falls off my bike pretty much every ride. <laughs> I'm just not coordinated. Poor mom. She wasted all that money on ballet lessons. Oh, dang it. Well, just think of where you'd be if you didn't have those. 
I know. Thanks, mom. <laughs> be in big trouble. But but yeah, so I ran into a tree. But it was it was fun to be outside again. Um I'm I, I still have a little bit of wonky heart rate issues from uh COVID. It's getting better Good. week to week, but uh Good. It still <laughs> runs a little higher. So I did 18 miles yesterday and I had to take a nap. <laughs> because hey, it was like real okay. hilly. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. I've taken 18 mile naps before. Yeah. So what are you doing this weekend? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know yet. It's supposed to be raining. So I've got some long runs in, um, I'm jonesing for a bike ride. So that's, but it's not going to happen this weekend because it's pouring rain all weekend. Anyway, do you have another run on the calendar? Um, not specifically. No. Okay. You're just enjoying the running right now. I'm just, yeah, I'm just enjoying being outside and it's, the weather's turned, but it's just easier to run in the cold for me than to ride my bike in the cold. And I just got tired of being on the trainer this winter. So, yeah, no, I totally understand. Mm-hmm. There's been something about the past year, um, uh, with so much zoom, I think. And yeah, pandemic. I think that's what it is. It's just that chronic insideness that yeah. we've had. And um, it, it is easier. Cause there's just even less gear to get outside and do a quick run. Oh yeah. And get some sunshine. Yep. Or and 30 minutes feels as effective as an hour in running into a tree. So you can also go to the local path. <laughs> trees. There, you, there you go. The other funny thing about this path, which I noticed they took the signs down, but it's in, it's in Atlanta. Um, I hope my mom doesn't listen to this. <laughs> the signs for the longest time were all full of bullet holes. Oh God. So anyway, yeah. Yeah seen that. Okay. Well, I have a question for you and probably besides the events of this past year, because we all know that you, you had a lot going on this past year. Um, Mm -hmm. but has there ever been a time in your life where you wanted to see something change and it took a while, like you had to kind of advocate for it? Oh yeah. What was it? (laughs) What's one that stands out? Uh, well, I think the, the, the concept of getting more women on bikes. Yeah. Um, you know, that's been a patience game. I think that, and then I, I do think really looking to see my hometown of Emporia, Kansas change, have a Renaissance, um, you know, that we were planted, you know, almost two decades ago are now like coming into fruition. So yeah. being patient with that, um, to see that change happen. You know, we are seeing more women, more diversity at start lines. It makes me really happy. And, you know, I like to think that I got to have a little hand in that. So, yeah. Yeah. What were some of the things you learned in the process? Um, for me, uh, probably having getting a little bit thicker skin. Cause I think when you take on things like that, there's the naysayers out there. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that I'm a people pleaser, but I definitely want people to feel welcome. And the result of that sometimes is if I'm, if the, if what I'm trying to do is being attacked or I'm being attacked, I, I tend to take it personally. And I need to, I've, I've grown, I've learned to grow a little bit thicker skin. It's still not thick enough, but 
it's it's thicker than it was 20 years ago. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm sure that's probably something uh, Celine could cover on the menopause thing. Do our does our skin get thicker as we go through <laughs> menopause? <laughs> I think it actually does the opposite, but that's but maybe on the oh yeah, that's right. Side. <laughs> but maybe the mental toughness that you develop through menopause. I don't know. Anyway, there's something there, but. Um, yeah. I mean, I think thicker skin and patience have been the lessons that I've learned in all of it. Like, and, and it does, you know, I hate the saying, but it does take a village. It's like, it takes a community of people to see it truly be impactful. And, and I guess the changes that, that have been the most meaningful and impactful to me, they do take time because you do want to see them last. I don't want that I don't want women at a start line to be a flash in the pan. You know, I want it to stay there. I want us to stay there. So, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I, uh, right after college, I worked for a ministry for 11 years for a faith-based organization. And about three years in, I became like a campus director, but my title was associate and my male counterparts was director but we did the same job. So <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't annoying at all. <laughs> and it was uh, a process that took out, I started having conversations with people and there were other women in that space that were having conversations mm-hmm. like other women around me and other women above me. And then there were women that didn't think we needed to change it. Like, mm-hmm. they were like it should stay that way. Um, and it was a constant, like for five or six years, I think I might've been right when I was leaving. So maybe seven years, they changed the title and I got to be a part of a lot of, of those conversations. Yeah. Um, but it was, interesting. that makes a difference. Yeah. It was a lot of conversations, some tears, some feeling like you're not as important. You don't matter as much mm-hmm. for quite a lot of years until we got to that point. And same thing that you said, like it, it wasn't one person. It was like right. a lot of people coming together and speaking out and seeing change happen. And it was interesting because I worked in the tech world for um, a, like full-time in a startup for a year. And I had a conversation with a mentor and we were talking about women in tech and just, you know, how hard it is for women in tech to get ahead. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was like, I've done this thing. I've done this like women fight the battle thing. And I just started crying. This is like right years ago. And she said, yeah, it's hard, isn't it? I was like, I'm just so tired of the same fight in different places. Well, and once you become aware of it, you really do see it everywhere, everywhere. It's such a, it's such, it's so woven into the fabric of our culture that the work for that change is not going to be over for a long, long, long time. Um, and I look at my job sometimes as, as a placeholder, like just, I just, at this point, I just got to make sure we don't go backwards so that the next generation of women come up, their platform is raised just like the women before us did. You know, like you, you gain, you make those gains and then you got to hold the ground <laughs> so yeah. that the next group 
that comes in with new energy and new fight and new ideas can go to the next level. And it, it's just, it's generational change is what we're trying to impact. And it takes forever. So. Yeah, it does. It takes a long time. Uh, I, I might've told this story before. I mean, one of the things that I always look at is like my little niece, Lydia, who's now five. Mm-hmm. But when she was four, I was up taking care of her and she, we were having this conversation and, um, she was telling me what I should do as per usual. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and she, as everyone's heard, she loves to ride her bike. She also loves her princess. And so I said, Lydia, you are feisty. And she's like, I am not feisty and cat. And I was like, no, feisty means that's a, that's a good thing. Like, you know what you want. You're standing up for it. And she goes, Oh, like the boys. And I was like, she's yep. four years old. Where is she learning this? So I don't want her to grow up in a world where she fights the same battles. Unfortunately, she probably will be, but it'll be further down the road and she can, you know, do the next great things. So, yep. Our guest today talks all about Yep. Uh, Catherine Bertine joins us today. And um, this is a woman who is a iconic placeholder let's say that she's she's affected the needle and moved and moved um the cycling industry um in a direction to be more accepting and and understanding of women it's the works like as we've talked isn't done but she comes on and talks a bit about her personal journey and it's it's pretty good yeah and i highly recommend everybody getting her book it's called uh stand I read it in a weekend. I talk, talk about it on the podcast <laughs> a little bit, but it's, it's really good. And it kind of talks about the toll that the journey can take on you. And is very eye opening for anybody that thinks it's a posh job to be a professional female cyclist. <laughs> good point. <laughs> so we will get on to our interview with Catherine Bertine. Hi folks, Sarah here, the founder of Live Feisty Media, the company that produces the podcast you're currently listening to. I just wanted to jump in here and invite you to our latest initiative here at Live Feisty, the Feisty Women's Performance Summit. On March 26th to 28th, we will be serving up a virtual summit like no other, designed specifically for active feisty women or anyone who wants to know how women can get the best out of our bodies throughout our lives. I think we all kind of figured out by now that a lot of sports and nutrition science studies, product and performance research is done on men and are a little confused maybe about what actually applies to us as women. So we collected experts from several arenas, physiology, psychology, nutrition science, and social sciences to get some answers. The Feisty Women's Performance Summit includes 20 educational sessions, plus networking events, group workouts, and an expo full of supportive brands. I seriously hope you can join us on March 26th to 28th, 2021. Tickets are only $149 and all sessions will be recorded and can be viewed up to two weeks after the event. For more information or to sign up, go to womensperformancesummit.com. The link will be in the show notes, of course. That's womensperformancesummit.com. See you there, feisty friends. Christy, do you know one thing that I'm really sick of? What is that? All the freaking trends. 
and that are coming out in wellness. Like eat this, uh, avoid that. I don't even yeah, know where to start. I, yeah. I don't know where to start. I don't know who to trust. Yeah. But we have a new sponsor that I'm pretty excited about. Have you, have you yes. done your stuff? Yeah. I'm so stoked. Yeah. So Inside Tracker is our new sponsor and they're going to cut through all the noise and they're going to analyze our blood, DNA, lifestyle, and fitness trackers. And then we get personalized science-backed trackable action plans for how we should eat, age. We need that and perform better. I know. I'm excited. It's the cool thing about it is it's, it's cheaper and it's way more convenient than the traditional blood tests. Um, they include biomarkers that are key to performance. So information that we're not getting from traditional blood tests. Um, and I think my favorite part is that they're not just going to give us the data, but they're providing us with nutrition and lifestyle tips to help us take action and cut through the noise. Yes. I love that. Cause I feel like whenever I go to the doctor and I get blood tests, I have no idea what to do with them. Right. Exactly. And I don't, they don't apply to like whatever I'm doing. Um, and the good news is because they are a sponsor of the podcast, all of you all get 25% off their entire store. You just go yes. to insidetracker.com slash girls gone gravel. Change is an inside job. Start on the inside. Hey, Christy. Hi, Catherine. Hey, are you thinking about your 2021 gravel adventures? I don't know who isn't thinking of 2021 gravel adventures. I know. Well, I kind of have a new bucket list race. What is it? It is a gravel stage race right outside of Calgary, Canada called the Trans Rockies Gravel Royale. Have you heard of this? Um, you know what? I have. I think it sounds amazing. Four days, four days of riding, 230 miles, 23,000 feet of climbing, and it's all in the Canadian Rockies. I think that sounds epic. Yeah. It's set up where they carry your tents, cook your food, and provide your medical support and more. And like set up a big party every night. That is the best kind of glamping right there. Yeah, it's really the only kind of glamping I will do. <laughs> I, I believe that. <laughs> and you know what's cool is they are holding early bird spots for women because they're really working to get more women on the starting line. So if and people are interested, where do you think they should go, Christy? Uh, TransRockiesGravelRoyale.com. I bet that site's got all the information. <laughs> I think it does. And fingers crossed we'll be at some awesome 2021 adventure soon. Hi, Christy. Hi. Hi, Catherine's. I know. Catherine. She spells her name just like me. Catherine. Yeah, I don't know who I'm talking to on this one. <laughs> You're going to have to go by last names. I know. <laughs> I love it. Well, and Bell's here. <laughs> We're filming late in the day. It's the time that the UPS man shows up. Ah. Uh, so we are very excited to have um, cycling advocate, um, writer, retired professional cyclist. What else can we call you? Oh, and founder of the, um, I'm sorry. Homestretch Foundation. I'm listening to the dog <laughs> growl in the background. We have Catherine Bertin um, joining us today. Welcome. Hello, ladies. It's so nice to be on your show. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you for sure. So I'm honored. We. Oh, sorry, Catherine. Go ahead. 
you, I was, I was, you go ahead. We're going to bark. You, you got the dog. <laughs> so Catherine, um, I'm, I'm super stoked that you're joining us. It's been a little while since we've, we've seen each other and you've been pretty busy since we last saw each other. Um, but before we go into all of that, can you give our guests a little bit of your background, who you are, what you do, where you've been, all of that? Oh, all of that. <laughs> uh, let's see. Well, thank you again for having me on this show. Uh, I've been around the cycling world for a little bit. Uh, I now am retired from the road racing side of cycling. I retired in 2017, but before that, I raced professionally for five years at the world tour level. And then of course there were five years before that of trying to get to the professional level. And before that I was a triathlete for about 10 years of which um, cycling was my strongest discipline. So that's what kind of inspired the shift over to cycling. Although also what it inspired that was a, a magazine assignment I was given as a journalist with ESPN, you know, go, go try cycling. <laughs> and uh, what no one really expected was that I'd totally fall in love with the sport and that it would actually stick well past the assignments uh, deadline. So um, yeah, so that's where I kind of got my foothold in the world of cycling. And then along the way, I was, uh, you know, introduced inadvertently to the, uh, the sexism and the inequality that was happening in cycling that I did not see in the other sports that I played growing up. And that was shocking to me. And, you know, as an athlete, I kind of had this one tunnel vision of like, try to get to this level. But what was brewing in my head as, as an activist, even though I didn't consider myself an activist or an advocate at that time, was really the question of, you know, what, why is this sport so outdated and backward and how can we make it better? <laughs> and so, you know, the culmination of that kind of came to a head and um, so I'd say between 2012 and 2014, when I started um, pushing for, for change, focusing on the women's tour de France or, and why there wasn't one, you know, and wanting to make sure that we could see if we could try to make some strides in that area. And long story short, I tried, reaching out to ASO and UCI by myself and I got nowhere and it wasn't until I banded together with others and really created a, a team um, to you know to take on these challenges that is when ASO and UCI started paying attention so um, you know if anything I learned that that getting change done happens when you form the right team <laughs> and uh, along the way so many trials and tribulations um, some that yielded great results and some that did not at all. And, um, by the time that I retired in 2017, you know, I wanted to see if there are some other areas of cycling that where we could create change, like in the salary inequity where women didn't receive a base salary. Um, you know, and I founded a company called, or not a company, excuse me, a nonprofit organization called Homestretch Foundation where we help fight the gender pay gap, not just in cycling, but you know, anywhere in society where it exists. So that keeps me busy. And as a writer, um, my book Stand just came out a couple of weeks ago. And it's nice to see that that's making its way out into the world. Um, and I'm hoping to keep pushing it out into the, the world beyond just our cycling uh, circles. 
So that's a little bit. There's a little background. I'm tired already. Like I <laughs> oh, there's there's so much there. Okay, I want to take a little step back because I actually read Stand over a weekend. It was so good. I highly recommend everybody get the book. Um and it's very beautifully written and very, very honest. Um, and so it's thank not- you. It might be too honest. <laughs> <laughs> people to see behind all the layers and like change takes a toll on people right Um, it does it does I think it's important it was for me as a writer to include the uh, the vulnerability and the authenticity because when I first tried the first draft of stand you know years ago I thought about it more like oh a manual how to create change and it was dry and it was horrible draft and I was like I wouldn't want to read this this is really boring, you know, and that, and also at that time, I didn't really know that I had still some life experiences to go through and I wasn't ready to write the book Mm. immediately on the heels of um, activism or the heels of luck course, which we had created back in 2014. I needed some time to digest all that came along after that. And yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, but when I read a book, I want to be able to relate to at least one character <laughs> and, and feel like I have a connection. So I was hopeful that, hey, if people can't relate to, to me or to my vulnerability, let me give them plenty of other characters that they can choose from. <laughs> so that was kind of the impetus. Hopefully <laughs> they don't choose like the head of the UCI to relate to. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, did you, were there, were there some characters in there where you were just like, oh, I can't stand this. (laughs) Well, the funny thing, and I think when we were chatting over um, Messenger, when we were setting this up is I worked at a bike shop and I was in triathlon. I worked at a primarily triathlon store and um, I didn't really know a lot about cycling until I started gravel cycling. And I started to see like, oh, I thought triathlon had some inequality as far as like we would get images and none of the images would be of, you know, it's like mm-hmm. one woman and 10 guys. And then I started to get into the cycling side and I was like, oh, this is way worse. And I was talking to, because we'd always do a big sale around the tour. And I was talking to the, to the bike shop owner about why there wasn't a women's tour. And he goes, oh, cause women can't ride the distance. And I was like, oh, this is four years ago. I was like, what? <laughs> And, and it was right around the time that all the research even was coming out about how women are so much better endurance wise than men. But then I didn't, re- so I was telling, I was complaining to a coworker about it and he was like, yeah, that's what the head of the UCI says. And I was like, oh, this makes like that trickles down and has a huge effect on like you hear something like that and you think it's ridiculous, but then a local bike shop owner is yeah. deleting that and putting that out to women. <laughs> I know. We have a visitor, by the way. Yeah, I, love I know. And this is actually the original gangster of Homestretch Foundation, Percy the Cat. I don't know if you have video feed, but she just jumped into my lap here. So, um, but I agree with you. It's wild how outdated that viewpoint is. And, you know, uh, the fact that you were just having this conversation a few years ago is um, very indicative that we still have work to do. And it's also such a telltale sign of how we are now so focused on anything that social media might throw our way. Um, And people don't even research back to the fact that in the 80s, there was a Tour de France for women for four years. 
women raced at the Tour de France, you know, actually between 84 and 89, that's five years. And um, anybody who, who does a quick Google will see that that race existed. So for this guy to say, oh, women could never do that distance is um, wrong physiologically, but also just wrong <laughs> in that, you know, he didn't even know historically that there has been a women's race at the Tour de France. Um, and back then the distances were shortened for the women so that both the men and the women could race on the same day. Um, it wasn't even shortened where like, oh, they're women. They just, you know, it was more of a scheduling conflict. Um, so, you know, there are just so many, so many viewpoints that people don't even know about. And I, I, I miss that a little bit that in this modern day, you know, uh, people won't always do just the tiniest bit of research to see if their beliefs really truly line up with history in any regard. I think what he meant was that he couldn't do the Tour de France. <laughs> Touche. I'm yes. sure that he thought he could do it. I'm sure that he did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's... Well, I, I have not read the book yet, so, which I, I definitely want to. I just, yeah, it's the time thing. So I, get I end it. up with a lot of audio books because I listen when I'm training and it's the way I can kind of kill two birds with one stone. Of course. But this, and so speak to me a little bit, does the book come off any of the, of the documentary Half the Road or is it completely a journey past that or what, where does it line up with that, with your I'm glad that you asked. And I, I'll first say that I have plans to do an audio book, but because right now I'm wearing just about every hat with the, uh, the you know, the print books coming out, um, an audiobook won't be in the, in the near future, but it will be there eventually. Cause I know how many people just like you, Christy, mm -hmm. sometimes prefer the listening route. So we'll get there at some point. Um, but yeah, so half the road is the documentary film that we made back in, um, 2014. It came out when I say we, that was my filmmaking partner and all the voices in my head. Um, and also, you know, I also say we, because this was a film that we had to crowdsource and crowdfund. Uh, because ESPN turned it down. They thought, oh, nobody ever watches women cycling, direct quote. You know, and I said, you're right, they don't because there's no way to watch it. So let's change that. Let's make this film happen. And when they brushed it off, I, it really flipped the switch for me by saying, no, I know that there are cycling fans out there and they want to see a film about the, the women who race the sport. And sure enough, the data proved that that was true. We crowdsourced the entire budget. We went over, we, we actually brought in more donors than we ever thought possible. And it was an equal split between men and women from 16 different countries who donated. No, that's awesome. Isn't, isn't that great, you know? So it completely dismissed this idea of like, oh, it's gonna be a chick flick, you know? <laughs> oh, there's a woman making a movie about women. You know, that was kind of what we had to go up against. And be like, no, 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 this is a film about athletes. And yes, I might be a woman, but my cinematographer was a dude. So equal, yay. Um, and yeah, so Half the Road is the name of the film. You can find it, it's out there now on, gosh, let's see, iTunes, Amazon, and for our international friends, Vimeo is a great way to see it. That's the easiest international link. And uh, yeah, you can download, download it for $2.99. <laughs> so, um, it's what I love is that it's still being downloaded and watched and viewed because the topic is still very relevant. Yeah. 
you know, and, I mean, and I the, the information at the end of that, like when you're talking, when you were giving some of the facts, yep, that like just are so insane, <laughs> so <laughs> wrong and like backwards. You know, first of all, what that's what seven years ago is that right? Yeah, seven years. Yep, uh-huh. and and yet it's seven years ago, and those facts I can't believe those facts were still in existence seven years ago. And then I'm also frustrated that we haven't gotten even further seven years after the fact. It's like, it's like a double rub. (laughs) Yeah, there are some, there, you know, a few little nuggets of progress. Yes. The antiquated age median rule, which used to be in effect. Seven yeah, tell years us ago. about that because yeah, you, yeah, you were an old lady cyclist, yes, right? I, and it was, I was one of the reasons you had a hard time. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a geriatric pregnancy. Yeah, um, pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> this rule exists, existed. It's gone now. It's gone as of 2014. But as we were making half the road, it was still very much there. And the rule was that women's professional UCI teams could not average over the age of 28. And, <sighs> you know, I, first of all, I started cycling at 31. And meanwhile, I'm trying to get a pro contract. I landed my first pro contract at 37. And part of the reason was because of the, you know, the stigma I was going up against trying to get a contract. And all these directors were like, "Mm, nope, 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 nope. You're too old. Um, Not going to work. So it stinks that that you know, that stigma was out there and people were like, well, why, why was it out there? And the short answer is uh, there used to be two, well, there still are two levels of men's pro cycling. There's the world tour and the pro continental. And what they had done is they had instilled an age median rule so that um, the pro Conti team couldn't average over 28, but yet the world tour level could be any age at all. Mm. And so they just simply <laughs> in their backdated or outdated view of equality, they're like, well, if we're going to have a rule for men, we should have it for women. But what they did was they just slapped that age median rule on all women's racing rather than some partial median of world tour and pro continental. It was just all of women cycling can't average over the age of 28. So, um, Clearly, we just had, had either pure idiots or, <laughs> you know, somebody in management didn't get the memo that that actually that doesn't equate to equality in any way whatsoever. Um, and it, it, you know, and also science was proving them wrong. Right? Science is so pesky. Yeah, that doesn't make it's sense just, with physiology, the women's physiology. No. It's like, no, this, yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't. And, you know, part of what we did in Half the Road was we brought in physiologists who studied exercise physiology to prove that point that as distance gets elongated, um, women actually not only come up to the men's level, but often surpass in endurance events. Um, women are better suited to endurance than, than men are. And on the flip side, men are usually always gonna be fastest, faster sprinters than women um, because of the fast twitch element, but on the flip side of endurance, how amazing that women do uh, often surpass men. And I'm sure you'll have to tell me, I'm sure you've seen this in gravel racing too, at the excessively excessive, I'll come back to that, but these really long distances, you know, the women will, um, will if not outperform very closely neck and neck with the, with the men. So well, that's, yeah. I, I beat Jens Void at DK. 
in 2018. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. So, you know, test yep. case. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And we love the Yenzi and we love the Christie. So that's fantastic. Yeah, exactly. I love yeah, it. It's just, it's to your point more than anything. It's just, you know, yep. very different, trained very differently. I would not sprint him. Well, right. yeah, sure. I would, of course, I would sprint him and laugh the entire time, <laughs> like eating the dust. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway. I know we all have our different strong points. Yeah. yeah. So that, that was, you know, one of the many themes that we explored in half the road, you know, with the attention of drawing to light, the absurdities that were in the sport, but also it was very much our focus to um, highlight the beautiful, awesome elements because, you know, if you're going to put out um, a documentary that you want people to watch, you can't have it be some two hour bitch fest on all that's wrong. You know, mm. that's not good for anybody. It's not good for sport, for the morale, or it's not even realistic if you just harp on the bad stuff, because there is so much good and beauty in cycling. So yeah, a big chunk of the book stand explores the behind the scenes stuff that was happening as we were making half the road and some of it is funny. Some of it is appalling. Um, you know, and so, gosh, it goes all over the place. But for me, it was also the gateway when it was, when we were making half the road that I had access to interviewing some of the great superstars of the, um, of the women's Peloton, mostly on the road scene. Um, you know, gravel was, gosh, that was in its infancy at that point, pretty much too. So uh, it was the roadies that I was connecting with on, um, like, so Mariana Vos, Emma Pooley, you know, these are world champions, Olympians. And I would ask every single woman that I interviewed, you know, do you want to see women racing at the Tour de France? Do you want to race it? And emphatically, everybody said, yes, yes, yes. And I, when I sat down with Mariana and Chrissy, oh, Chrissy Wellington of triathlon as well, and Emma Pooley, and all of them said, absolutely, there needs to be a women's race at the Tour de France. That's when I knew that I was onto something, that now I had some star power. Uh, we could start to turn the heads of the UCI and ASO. And maybe they didn't know me, you know, with my accolades and pro cycling. Yeah, I made it to that level. And I had, I'd won a couple races, but I didn't have the, the status that these stars did. And that was okay. You know, I had um, organizational skills and um, I could write a little bit. So maybe if I could use the, this skill set in my wheelhouse, then it would be, it would be great to be able to, to put these women on the front line and I could be the, you know, in the back. Um, and that's really what, what made it happen. So we made a pressure group, Le Tour Entier, which is the whole tour, as in women belong in the whole tour. And we formed this pressure group and that's finally what got ASO and UCI to listen to us. Yeah. To, uh, share, Catherine, why you all picked the Tour de France, like um, that specific event, because I know there was a very real reason behind that. Oh, why we went for the Tour de France? Yeah. Um, I just let my cat out, by the way. That was my I was like, experience. She's on. <laughs> oh, cats, man. When they are, when we're talking on Zoom, they're like, I want attention. And she was like nipping my ankles. So sorry. Had to that's put a, that that's up. A, yeah. Usually my cat's ass walks by the screen. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's something else. You learn a whole new side of cats during pandemic life of Zoom calls. <laughs> exactly. 
but uh, yes, yeah, so the Tour de France, sorry. Um, well, we went, we targeted Tour de France for what we believed, and I still believe, is that change has to come from the top down. It has to have that trickle down waterfall effect. If things are not equal at the top, then all of the levels, uh, you know, from grassroots working upward, you're just going to be met with resistance the whole time unless things are equal at the top. So it makes sense to start there. Otherwise, you know, as history proves, like feudal uprising is not a productive way, you know, to go about creating change. And uh, it made sense. And also because the whole world, you know, I'm going to say 99% of the world knows what the Tour de France is. They know it's a bike race in France. <laughs> and that's a, that's a huge starting point too, for if we're going to create worldwide change, then people better have an idea of what we're shooting for. Um, so that made sense to us, of course. And honestly, the fact that women had been there once, but were no longer there, it was puzzling to us, you know, to peel back the layers of, well, what happened? Um, and we did that research and we found out that, as I mentioned, um, the women were there from 84 to 89, and then it, they were cut from the event. And what we found out was it was around 1989 that um, worldwide media started uh, paying for rights to televise the Tour de France. And obviously this is way before computers and internet. So televised rights were a big deal. And the and ASO sold the TV rights um, for the men's race. And rather than including the women saying, hey, guess what? We've got two races for you. They just completely eliminated the women. And the man who ran the, the women's side had said, well, okay, fine. We'll, we'll do our own tour de France, maybe, you know, at a different, different weeks or a different time of the year. And ASO said, no, you may not have the naming rights the tour de, to the tour de France. And they did try to start another event, but they had to give it different names. Like I think Grand Boucle was one, um, but they could not call it the tour de France and sponsors were, they were having a hard time finding sponsors. And uh, that race eventually also kind of dissipated. And it was, it was not three weeks, it was less distance, and it didn't have the same sponsors. And it was set in August. And, um, you know, ultimately, that it was ASO that said, you know, that caused the demise of the US, the, the women's racing side of it. So um, that it just disappeared. And that was really sad. And so what we were lobbying for was, yes, we want equal inclusion. Yes, we want three, re three weeks. We understand that it takes time for a three-week race to be, to be built because at the moment, there are very few women's pro teams that would have the financial budget to actually be on the road for three weeks straight. But with enough timing and planning, of course, they could in incrementally build that from year to year. So our structure was start the first year, with a three to five day stage race and build, add two days, maybe three days to that incrementally uh, for the next you know, five years. And then in the end, you'll have the full Tour de France and the teams can budget accordingly along the way. And it made perfect sense financially, morally, socially, it was the right thing to do. And um, you know, this was all the behind the scenes work that was happening. It wasn't just like we launched a petition 
we launched a movement, a website, a manifesto. We had a plan to sit down. We wanted to sit down with ASO and make this race happen with them. And, and rather than just uh, say, hey, there should be women racing, do it, make it happen. We're like, no, we want to make this happen with you. And uh, when we launched the petition in July of 2013, we, you know, I remember thinking, and this was back when change.org was also relatively new to the scene. It had only been around for a few years and you had to, you know, enter in more data then than you did now to sign a petition. So it took effort for people to click yes. And I remember thinking, oh, maybe we'll get a hundred people to sign this, maybe a thousand people, who knows? Well, it went viral and we had nearly a hundred thousand people sign that petition, um, you know, in that month that it was launched. And uh, that's when the media got on board. Everybody was really excited about this and our whole plan, and it said so in the petition was we want to meet with ASO and make this happen. So that was the objective, get a meeting with ASO. And um, sure enough, ASO was really um, bothered by this petition. Christian Prudhomme definitely let us know that he, <laughs> he was very annoyed with this. Yet behind the scenes, they did agree privately and quietly to a meeting, but um, that we would be issued a gag order. We could not possibly talk about the fact that a group of women were going to meet with ASO to discuss women's racing. Um, and we put the pieces together. We figured out they wanted this to be a very quiet, silenced meeting because if they were going to create any change, they wanted it to be their idea, <laughs> which kind of made us giggle. We're like, well, you know, probably 100,000 people already know that um, we might have had something to do with it. <laughs> and, you know, that's all right, whatever. Because if you're, you know, if, if you're a true activist and advocate, you're not doing it for yourself. You don't need your name attached to it. Um, you're doing it for the greater good. So it kind of made us laugh. Um, but it is interesting now that if you were to go and Google, or if you look at the Wikipedia page for La Course by Tour de France, you're not going to find any of our names on that. <laughs> Despite the fact that we actually built it for them, you know, unpaid behind the scenes. Um, but you know, that's okay. They silenced us then, but I've got about 400 pages out now on it. And I don't think they're going to be able to silence Stan. So <laughs> I did crack up in the book. I won't give a lot away because there's a lot of really funny parts that you write in there about your experiences with them. But one where you were like, yeah, hey, we'll probably get a few hundred people sign the petition. They can send like, and you had an option of it could send um, the head of ASO, the head of ASO, an email every time the petition was signed. You're like, it'll probably be a couple hundred emails. It'll annoy him, and then he gets like ninety eight thousand emails. <laughs> That's <laughs> <Yeah>. awesome. <laughs> that was great, and I encourage all of you out there who might um, go the route of a change.org petition. Definitely check the box where the head of the organization that you're petitioning gets an email every time it's signed, you know? I he changed his email address. Oh, I bet he probably did. <laughs> <laughs> or put up some For severe some. blockers, you know? <laughs> it made me laugh. I was like, that's feisty. <laughs> so oh, it was me. fun. It was fun. I remember, you know, from the book, Chrissy was like, I don't know, maybe you shouldn't do that. 
And I was feeling all feisty and like, no, you know, it might be, you know, she was like, it's a bad idea. I'm like, oh, it's a good idea. And either way, it all came together in the end because we did get the meeting. But the first thing that happened in that meeting was Christian Prudhomme, like doing the, what I call the great finger wag. He <laughs> was like, that petition, you should not have done that petition. That's how we started the meeting. You know, <laughs> we were all kind of like, <laughs> but yeah. that's why we're here. <laughs> like, we're now sitting together because of it. But, you, you know, we were scolded like little school children. <laughs> you had tried to reach him many times before. This yeah. wasn't the first, like, we just right. signed a petition. You had, like, sent him proposals and tried to reach him. And You know what, Catherine? I'm really glad that you bring that up because I, the responsible way to go about activism um, is to reach out to the head of that organization that you're trying, where you're trying to get your foot in the door and talk to the people, you need to reach out to them privately and personally. And you know, that whether through email and if email doesn't work, phone calls, you know, anything like that. Um, but don't use a petition as your first attempt. You know, that doesn't know anything about that. Do no, you? well, I was just gonna toss this over to Christy because. I think it's a huge, it's important, not just important, it's respectful. Try to get in touch with the person who is at the top of that, that, you know, um, that ladder, that chain, whatever you want to call it, get in touch with that head person the right way first. And if they are, they continue to ignore you, then you can take a social movement to try to get exposure. But um, Christy, you want to weigh in on this? Nope. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. But I, I'm sure you would understand that that's absolutely no, yeah, not I agree. way. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's We have to remember that um, I think activism, and you know what? I actually experienced this, and I'm happy to tell you this, this situation um, too in the podcast, but activism isn't about acting. It's about educating yourself, and it's about listening, you know, and researching. Um, and I'm going to give you... Uh, an example that still kind of rattles me a little bit to this day. Um, a couple years back, I was at the Women's Tour of California, which we know has some inequity to it as well, because they only had half the days that the men had. They had four days and the women, sorry, the women had four days, the men had seven. Um, and we were trying to gain equal inclusion uh, in race days. And there was a woman who was new to the scene. She was new to bike racing, but she was very empowered as, as an activist and wanted to help create change but she was so new to this role of activism. And um, while I was chatting with some people in one of the tents at the tour of California, uh, she took it upon herself to go up to, let's see, it was um, Laura Winter and Brad Soner were doing an interview of uh, one of the athletes. And this woman who had kind of attached herself to, you know, to the movement started going up and yelling at, um, at Laura Winter and Brad Soner, who were doing the interview. They were the talking heads of the interview. And, you know, just saying like, why aren't you covering enough women's racing? And, you know, so this woman totally misdirected the fact that um, you don't yell at the, the cameramen and the news anchors. You know, if you wanna see change affected, you go to the owners of the tour of California. That's where you start connecting with, why aren't there enough women women's days in this race, but you don't start yelling at news anchors, right? Mm -hmm. And I didn't learn of this till later when Laura and Brad contacted me and they, they said, do you know this person? And they filled me in a little about what had happened. Of course, I was 
horribly embarrassed. I'm like, no, I, you know, I'm so sorry that this person chose that realm of activism. And I went back to this woman. I said, hey, well, what was going on? Why'd you go up to the news and start killing at these two um, people who are actually, they were our, our friends and our benefit to women's cycling. They were conducting an interview about women's cycling. They're our allies. And, um, and her response was activists act. And I waited for her to continue. And she's like, no, we activists act and they disrupt. And I remember having to, you know, gently and kindly educate her. I'm like, that's not, that's not how you do it. You know, you know, first of all, those are the wrong people <laughs> to go up and, and yell to. And um, second, it'll, you know, it'll make you look disorganized and you look bad and you don't want that either. So, you know, let's sit down and, and if you really want to help affect change in women's cycling, let's share some ideas about how to do it a little bit better, more tactfully. Um, so, you know, for anybody out there who wants to step onto those front lines of activism, know that the first thing you've got to do is um, research, educate yourself, and find a really peaceful, benevolent way to reach out to those who are in charge. Um, but don't go yell at the camera people. <laughs> that's, that's not the right way to do it. Or the volunteers. Oh. <laughs> oh, good Lord. I I feel like if you yell at a volunteer, you need to be disqualified from that event if you're an athlete. And if you're a spectator, you need to be removed. Like volunteers are the lifeblood of any, any event that's put on. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought those points up um, because I think especially after the, the climate of this last year, there are a lot of people that are like, I want to see change now. And I'm going around it. Like I'm going to be really strong and firm and good intentions. But I was actually just on the phone with the head of diversity and inclusion for um, USA triathlon because of our summit with live feisty and we're doing an initiative with them. And we were talking about um, the tri club that I was a part of back in my tri days and how like five years ago we implemented some things some programs specifically to get more women in the club and in the sport. And last year before COVID, when we had our coaches meeting, like our coaches were, we had 16 female coaches and 14 male coaches and the club was 49% female and 51% male. That didn't happen overnight. No, <laughs> right. No. That took like years of work to get there. Um, and so like change Although it should happen fast, it doesn't. We, we're fighting systems and things that have been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. That's so true. It is. And, you know, same thing. I feel that that's just about every area of change. You know, and when you can get your foot in the door and start with, you know, the first step, then that's a huge victory. It needs to be celebrated and it needs to be built upon. But um, in this modern day and age where everything does seem like you can acquire it instantly. That's, that is not um, how it really works, you know, in, in the real world, it does take time. But uh, we also need to make sure that, um, you know, we, we used to hear this a lot in cycling, like the whole, oh, Rome wasn't built in the day philosophy, you know, and if the person who is in power and on the more antiquated side, side of it, you know, so if we're saying like, oh, women belong at the Tour de France. And, you know, if they're like, oh, well, you know, Rome wasn't built in the day, it'll take time. Then you have to hold them accountable for using, mm -hmm. you know, using that scale in the wrong favor, in the wrong direction. And you say, no, 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 there were women at the Tour de France in 1984 to 1989. 
So don't give me this bullshit that it can't happen or it won't happen or it needs to take time. You know, make sure that you have your radar on for something just being outright sexist, but them using taking time to their advantage. That's but but we always have to remember that that yes, absolutely things do take time. Just don't let anybody uh, manipulate you thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, there's right. There is a, it's, a, it's a delicate balance. Um, it is. It is. But uh, yeah, you're not building a city. You're putting women on start lines. Yeah, <laughs> <Two> totally <laughs> different things. <laughs> it's totally different. different. <laughs> right. Exactly. You're not building a city out of like chiseled blocks of concrete from the quarry that does take yeah. time with your slaves yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay oh, well I would love if you share just a little bit about um and you're very open in the book about it just some of the personal toll that activism can take because at some point you're working like like five jobs but also like had some you know mental uh, well, facing your demons you talk a lot about that but then also some depression yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. I think the more that we talk about mental health and depression, um, the more we can help, you know, shine a light on the fact that it's okay to talk about, about mental health. We need to do that. So, um, yeah, you know, things got really, really difficult and bad for me in 2014 when I went, when I went through a very unexpected divorce and um, for my husband to, you know, to take off and leave out of nowhere, very, very unexpectedly, threw me into a, a total tailspin. You know, um, that's hard for anybody, no matter what, if that were to happen in any realm of whatever someone's going through in life. Uh, for me, what was happening was that I was very much in the public eye in terms of cycling and equality. Like La Course was happening, Half the Road was happening. I had a book coming out that year, and so in you know our small microcosm of uh, of the cycling world, um, you know, I was visibly on the front lines. So I had to portray this image of being very strong and having all my shit together. And um, on one hand, that was true, but on the personal side, it was completely the opposite. I was shattered and devastated, and I felt like I had to wear these two masks, you know, the public one and the private one. And you know that might that might be doable and okay for like a day or a week, but uh, to try to wear that mask for for months and or years, oh, it has the opposite effect. You know, you can't be two people, and we shouldn't have to be two people. And um, it really really affected me to the point where, you know, I I didn't want to be around anymore, and contemplating not just contemplating but planning suicide, and it was not until I was able to reach out and ask for help that that turned the page. And obviously I'm keeping this short for, you know, the podcast, but it goes on in the book. You'll, you'll get more of those um, ugh, deep details, you know? So I, I, when I bring it up in that, in a shorter term, I, by no means I'm glossing over it. I'm right. just uh, keeping the fact that this is not a six hour podcast, nor would anyone want it to be right. So <laughs> not the ritual show. <laughs> After 516. So what happened next was, you know, and it was, but it was so, it was just such a difficult, difficult time. Um, and I think it's also important to talk about the fact that, you know, uh, this was definitely true for me in 2014, and I hope it's less true now, but um, back then, a lot of people felt that there's really only one type of depression, like this clinical or um, chemical depression, 
that people are born with. And that's the only type of depression that we know. And because we see these commercials on TV, right, for Abilify and, and other um, uh, depression-oriented medications. And so, you know, I know that I certainly was, was brought up believing there's one, only one type of depression. And that's just not the case. Finally, science has proven that there are many branches on the tree of depression. And for me, what I was experiencing at that time was very much situational depression. Something really terrible mm. and tragic had happened in my life. For me, that was divorce. Um, people who go through grief, maybe the loss of a loved one, that's another branch of situational depression. So too are the big things in life, like um, uh, maybe losing a job that you absolutely loved or you're, you're, you've lost your livelihood or you've moved to a city that might be really horrible for you. You know, these are all areas where depression can set in. And um, it's on one hand, it's good to know that, hey, this doesn't have to be like a lifelong um, journey through depression. Uh, but yet it also doesn't present itself as, oh, this is just temporary. No, de depression that happens situationally feels very, very real and feels very, very permanent. And it can be just as devastating and um, debilitating and difficult as, as clinical and or chemical balanced you know, depression. So, um, but, but of course, as I'm talking about it now, none of that was clear to me when I was yeah. suffering it, right? Of course not. You don't, you know, all you know is that um, when you stop feeling anything, you know, um, that's when you're in a dangerous place. Um, it's, it's okay to feel sad because sad is an emotion. Sad is natural and sad is normal. But when you just stop feeling anything, that's a very dangerous corner where it starts turning toward uh, potentially maybe not wanting to be here anymore, you know, and that's where um, that's where it had gotten for me. And um, if anybody out there, if this is resonating, you know, with you, um, just know that, that that it is fixable and it's solvable. But the first thing that you've got to do is is ask for help. And um, sometimes that can be a a dear friend or family member. For me, it was my dad. Um, and that's what bridged the gap for me. Once I was able to admit to him that I needed help, then I was able to take the next step of actually looking for professional help and seeking a, a counselor or a therapist, um, many different names, you know, uh, doctor, therapist, counselor, whatever you want to call this person um, is fine. But, uh, you know, and I love telling people that, um, it's now, it's relatively easy to step onto that, um, that level of, well, where do I find change? Or no, sorry, where do I find counseling? That's, um, you know, something like psychologytoday.com has a link where you can actually enter what type of therapist you're looking for, right? Somebody dealing with depression. Um, you can enter your zip code. You can enter whether you prefer a male or a female. You can enter if you need sliding scale help with uh, payment, maybe you have insurance, maybe you don't, you know, you can enter in all of these things and you see profiles that pop up almost like, um, I don't want to equate it to online, but in a very good way, it is that because they don't see you, you get to see them. And, you know, um, maybe for you, that means picking out a face that you feel comfortable or reading a profile that just makes you feel good. Um, you know, that's out there. So I like sharing that story that that's how I found a therapist. Uh, it was important to me that they lived within a certain driving radius. Um, well, for me at that time, I was also struggling because I didn't have 
a car. That was something that I had lost in the divorce. So um, I was, I needed to be able to get around by bike, you know, and, or in this modern day and age, especially with the pandemic, most therapists are doing things online, you know, until we're in a better place. So for me, these were important factors. Like, could I get to the therapist that I needed to see? And, um, and I could, and all of that was just at least knowing that there was a research tool out there that can, um, can help people. So if any of my babbling here, maybe, you know, turns <laughs> the light on for someone like, Hey, it's out there. Um, you know, psychology today.com was what I used, but there are other sites too, but, um, good results with that. So, yeah, that's think, a yeah, on. that's a ton of, of good insight. And I just, I think it's important to share, just like you said, it's, you're reaching somebody you don't even know who it's going to be, but those the, sharing those conversations can actually be life changing and life saving. But Absolutely. where so where where do we find your book? Because I know yeah. I've seen you publish it, push it out there on your social, but but where else can we find it? What's the best way to get get to you? So the easiest way is that um, Stand is where all books are sold and uh, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. Okay. But if you want to shop locally, you can go to your local book dealer, bookstore, you know, and, and say, uh, do you have Catherine Bertine's Stand? And if they don't have it in the store, they will order it for you. Um, and that's such a great option to keep, uh, keep stuff local too. So that's there. And at katherinebertine.com, you can also, you know, join my mailing list, which is very sparingly. I'll just send out like an email a month and let anyone know if I'm up to anything new on the book front. But um, that's, that makes it pretty easy. But stand is where books are sold, whatever way you want to go. And there's hardcover, paperback, and ebook form as well. So whatever awesome. way that you get to read. Yeah. And you self-published it. So it's like, it helps yes. with self-publishing when you draw, like people buy Oh, it helps a lot. <laughs> helps a lot. Yeah. The journey of the self-publishing story is um, in and of itself. It's, it's very strange that it actually aligns with the struggle within Stand. And the yeah. short answer there being that uh, Stand is my fourth book. And my first three books were all traditionally published by corporate, you know, um, companies like Random House, ESPN, Little Brown. These are the, the big publishing houses that are out there. And I felt that both my literary agent and I felt that, okay, book number four, this is timely, you know, material. And uh, it, it's not gonna be a problem finding a publisher who wants to join forces. And we were both pretty darn shocked when um, 25 rejections came in for the proposal. A proposal is, um, not that you have stand finished or fully written, but you, it's a proposal where you tell the publisher what stand will be about, you know, and, uh, they all turned it down. All the big houses turned it down. What was funny was they all had the same response. They said a book about women who stand up and fight for change, not marketable, won't sell. Don't bother. There's no room on the shelf. Those are all direct quotes. And I remember thinking, this is weird. Is anybody paying attention to our social and political climate? No. Because <laughs> it can't. <laughs> What's it, going on? Right? <laughs> yeah. It's, this is like, what? <laughs> I know. Well, that's what I was like. And of course I felt quite discouraged too. You know, it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've already proven that I can, I'm able to write a book. Why am I facing this opposition? And after doing some deep digging, what we pretty much figured out that was that um, in the past, 
17 years. My first book came out in 2003. This was before social media. You know, the internet itself was still pretty much an infant. It was only about five years old in 2003. Um, but what had changed over the years is that once social media started, publishing houses kept close tabs on if a book was selling well, then what they wanted was another book just like that book yeah. that was selling well, right? And so uh, I can tell you right now what's going to be on the top five of the New York Times bestsellers list. Without even looking at it, I can tell you what's on there. A book about the political right, a book about the political left, a war hero who's done something amazing, a family pet who has taught the family wisdom, and a celebrity autobiography. Those will be on the top five, maybe top six or seven, right? Every now and then you'll see um, an original book sneak in there. But what's wild is, is that's, you know, and then, and then of course, repeat authors, you know, the, the Stephen Kings, the Danielle mm -hmm. Steeles, and I do believe they, they should be on this list, but so too should um, important current topics or new authors that perhaps are not quote unquote famous, right? So what was happening with, with the stand proposal was that these publishers were doing comps, which is a similar to what real estate agents do. They were looking for, are there any other books about women who stand up and fight for change? And there weren't. So. No, yeah. correct. So, yep. so their direct answer was it won't sell. But how interesting that back in 2003, my first book was a memoir of what it was like being a professional figure skater on tour in South and Central America. <laughs> and Little Brown wanted that book because nobody had ever written a book like that. They wanted something that was different and original. And that book actually did pretty darn well. So how interesting that in just 17 years in the advent of social media, now they don't want originality. They only want the carbon copies. And I think we too, as moviegoers have also seen that that's why we're you on super music World, too in any right? of the arts it's really mm -hmm. come down to you know if when you're profitizing the arts like that that's what you're going to find so yes yes i like to look for the silver lining and i think that we can see you know in um netflix and hulu mm -hmm. people are flocking to original content yeah they're just as tired of the, you know, the same old Superman 12s, you know, et cetera, as, you know, people are getting tired of that. I don't know. At... Catherine Taylor loves her a Hallmark Christmas movie. <laughs> I, did. I, did. I got on a Hallmark. I've never watched them before. I got on a kick this past year because there's a lot of shit going on in the world and I just needed something happy. So I watched one every day. Let them coexist. It's okay. It's okay. That's what it should be about. Sorry, Catherine. I had to call you out on that one. I know. <laughs> There's room for all. There's room for yeah. more shelves. There okay. is. So. Uh, that's what we did. So yeah, so basically I had the choice. I had to either not write the book at all and listen to those publishers, or I could found my own self-published label and put it out on my own. So I founded uh, New Shelf Press they told me there was no room on the shelf so all right i'll build a new one maybe someday we can have more books about not just women but anybody people who stand up and fight for change i want to hear those stories and i don't think i'm the only one so um that is where we are so yes i'm put you know stand is out there but your podcast is so wonderful and it's so helpful that if we can gain some more members of team stand you know, to know that this book is out there and um, share it with their circles, then we are telling corporate publishers that they are wrong, that books about women who stand and fight for change do matter. 
And we're making an indent, you know, it's only been out for a few weeks and we've already surpassed, um, I think we've gone 10 times the amount that a normal um, uh, self-published book will sell, you know, we're at the 2K mark. That's a lot in the book world and we're just charging forward. So um, hopefully this will help. I I highly encourage everybody to get, I read it over a weekend. I could not, I literally could not put it down. I was like, that's Catherine. That's a, you know, this is a 400 page book. So the fact that you read this in a weekend, thank you. (laughs) That's amazing. I was like, even trying to write it on the train, read it on the trainer. And I was like, this is not working (laughs) side to side. And now I'm like at the point where I need readers. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I can't see this, but I was like, I just got to get this trainer ride over with so I can finish reading this book. <laughs> <laughs> well, Catherine, thank you for joining us today. Awesome. Ladies, thank you for having me. And I so look forward to doing a gravel event with you in the future. I would absolutely love that. So hope to see you in person soon. It's coming up. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, ladies. You have been listening to the Girls Gone Gravel podcast. This podcast is edited and produced by the team at Live Feisty Media. If you've enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating. It really helps other women find the podcast. And be sure to follow us at Girls Gone Gravel on Instagram or Facebook.